Okay. Let me try it again. Okay. I'll do one for you. All right. I'll do oh, it all one right, for all you. All right. You do one. You do one. I'll do it and I'll do the line. And we don't have much time, man. Hurry up. All right. Watch. All right. Hurry up, man. We don't have much time. Why do you understand how this is done? Uh, Danny, you want to start it? And that is why I feel so strongly about you. Waiter. Welcome to the NBC's Saturday Night After Party. This week, we'll be taking a look back at the December 13th, 1975 episode from the first season of Saturday Night Live with host Richard Pryor and musical guest Gil Scott Heron. I'm John Murray, and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR, and you can connect with us at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out and are greatly appreciated. All right. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Pryor. You feeling all right? You sound a little bit different today. Uh, I have been laid up. Yeah, I got hit with a pretty nasty chest cold, so I still sound a little little gravelly. This... this uh, this wonderful condenser mic that I'm using is probably going to pick up a little bit of phlegm and gargle and sputter. And so our audience is just going to enjoy all sorts of, <laughs> well, there, <laughs> let's, let's start right now. Here we go. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> maybe I'll leave that in the cast. Yeah. Yeah. This will work. You got that Harvey Firestein thing going on with your voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to get through this, but yeah, I'm still, I'm a clammy, sore, achy, uh, doped up mess tonight. <laughs> So tonight you're going to have to be the fun, enthusiastic, charming, and engaging one in the cast because I'm not going to be able to take on that role. Yes. As you usually do. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So tonight we're going to do something kind of special. We're doing our first vintage rewatch of a classic SNL episode. And it was your suggestion that we go all the way back to season one and take a look at the Richard Pryor episode. So my first question is why? What, What was it about the Richard Pryor episode that you thought would be fun to dig into? Well, I thought it was relevant today because there's a lot of racial tension going on um, in the U.S. more so than here in uh, Canada amongst us Canucks. But, you know, with uh, Trump in power and the travel ban going on, all that stuff, it, it would be appropriate, I think, to revisit something that touches on race as, uh, as a topic. So aside from that, you know, this is a, an episode that contains a lot of sketches that are considered classics. They're, they're in all the right. montages and they're in all the specials. So I thought it was a good one to start with for sure. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a seminal episode. This is, this is one of the 10 o'clock, you know, official SNL vintage episodes. It had, you know, a couple very surprising moments, even back then surprising moments, but even more so today when we look back and see some of the boundaries that the show was willing to push at that time and uh, just how, you know, edgy and, (laughs) and raw it could be. It really is illuminating to see kind of what the values were and what the motivations were back when the show was just kicking off. So yeah, this is only seven episodes into the show's run. You can see that there's still a lot of evolution taking place at the show. It's a very cramped show. Yeah. It's very rapidly paced compared to what we're used to. 
Yeah. So it, it really is a trip to jump back 40 plus years and, and just get a feel of, of what cool <laughs> was like, at least the, you know, late night <laughs> network cool was at the time. Oh, cool is the word though. So cold open Garrett Morris is going to open the show. Chevy isn't having it, but Garrett Morris has a trump card, which is Richard Pryor and some <laughs> unstated army has determined that this is Garrett's week and he gets to do the fall and he gets to open the show. What are your thoughts? Well, if you're going to compare it to cold opens of today, it's a lot less political. I mean, it's not political at all. And that's kind of what we're used to seeing. That is mm-hmm. the place in the SNL format where you have your political commentary that and weekend update as well. Right. So maybe it wasn't so much that same format. They tended to uh, focus on Chevy's Pratt falls and that's how they like to open the show back then. What I like about this cold open is uh, you know, we're seven episodes in. So that means SNL has been on the, on the air for about two months. Mm-hmm. That's long enough for people to get a sense of what the show's about. They're used to Chevy doing the fall. So now they're able to get a little reflexive and, and start being self-referential about what the show is about. Right. Seven episodes in, they're already learning that they can mine their own traditions and that they can, they can wink when they want to and, and kind of upend things. There's always been that willingness to kind of poke fun at the show and, and it's staple sketches and characters and things like that. So this is, yeah, a very early incarnation of that. What I thought was interesting, and it didn't occur to me when I was watching it the first time, but after I rewatched it a couple times, the the show as a whole, I mean, looking back at this, it actually in a, maybe an unintentional way, it kind of sets the theme for the show. There's a lot of sketches throughout the show where you have a black character who's seemingly marginalized, but then in the end kind of gets the upper hand in the situation. And this is actually a very quick little presentation of, of that theme. And I just, I don't know how calculated that was, but it is interesting that that's just kind of something that I think Richard Pryor probably just kind of pushed as the writing process was going on. I think that as much as he had the ability to influence and sculpt the show, I think that that was definitely part of his thinking that you see kind of coming through many times throughout the, the course of the show. And I think this is the first uh, incarnation of that. And so I, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. And you could argue that Richard Pryor had more of an influence on the writing more so than what anyone had seen so far in the previous six episodes. Right. He might've been the first person to bring in his own writers. I think Yeah, I could be wrong, but I know he brought in Paul Mooney. Yeah. Most people know him from the Chappelle show, Mm -hmm. but yeah, he, he was pretty involved and and you could be right that uh, this is a direct result of his influence. Yeah. I think it just really is the, the general feeling that he wanted to convey, even if it, he didn't consciously realize it, that's just naturally where him and his handpicked writers, where their mind was at. So that's, what's going to start surfacing. And you do see it many times throughout the show. Just very, very interesting to see how heavily Richard Pryor was able to control the show's production. And, and he brought in his own participants and performers and writers. And it, it really was done on his terms in a lot of ways, which is surprising because the network was so touchy about even having him involved at this point that he was able to um, maintain so much control over the the final episode. It, it just, it, it really, <laughs> it floors me. It, it, I think it, it says a lot about his savvy and his ability to sort of stage manage things. Cause yeah, he, <laughs> it really is his show. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And you're right that the network definitely was a bit nervous about it. They, aired this episode with a seven second delay. Right. So there, there's, there's a bit of proof right there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In a tradition that goes back to the very first episode, uh, Richard Pryor chooses to do some of his stand up bits for his monologue. 
he gets into a discussion about not being able to keep women. And then that devolves into a discussion about how drunk people aren't happy. And then finally he has this, this big finale bit about tripping on acid. I can't really speak to how groundbreaking it was at the time, but watching it even today, I felt that that end to end really held up as far as just being really strong stand up that was just very polished and incredibly competent. Yeah, this stuff was dynamite. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Richard Pryor, he had a really unique voice and not just as a, a black comedian, but as a comedian in general. You know, a lot of people, what they were doing was one-liners and, and insult <laughs> yeah. comedy. Yep. His material is rich with stories. There's characters, there's dialogue. It's almost like a one-man show. Mm-hmm. Like, you could argue that a lot of these concepts and, and this what was in this material could have been made into sketches. Yeah. You know, there's uh, there's conversations going on between, uh, you know, drunk people and <laughs> the people who've been terrorized. Uh, you know, there's fisticuffs that takes place in the middle of it. It's, it's very physical and it's, it's very enthralling. Yep. No, I thought it was masterful. And his physicality too was very sharp. He, you know, when, when he was getting into that bit about having offended some guy at the bar and he gets punched and he, you know, he actually hits the ground. And when he is tripping, he does slow motion walking and sort of bends his gravity around him. It's just, there's a lot of performance there that it was surprising to see. Cause my first exposure to Richard Pryor, like, probably most kids of the eighties. It certainly wasn't from his standup. It was from some of his like comedy movies. I'm thinking like Superman. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that's like the Richard Pryor that comes to mind. And, and since then, you know, I've obviously learned a bit more about, you know, his history and heard some of his stuff, but seeing him in his prime in the moment on a stage live, just completely just being a force and really owning it and being able to, you know, just execute that sharply. It really shows that the, the lore is true. He really was one of the greats. Yes, he was. Okay, moving on. Samurai Hotel. Uh, This is the first appearance of Futaba, John Belushi's samurai character. And the setup is he's the concierge at a hotel and he offers some very intense check-in service to Chevy Chase. What's interesting about this character is it started out as a impression of Toshiro Mifune. Uh, an old Japanese actor who was in a lot of Akira Kurosawa films. Okay. So that's something that Belushi brought to the table, you know, during rehearsals and, and auditions. So that was kind of retooled into this character and um, gold was struck, mm-hmm. so to speak. This is one of the great classic characters of, of the early SNL era. Yeah. And this was a good way to, to introduce him. Yeah. They, they found a good vehicle for him. I had the same thought. I didn't actually know anything about, Belushi's history with the character or what motivated it, but he is so clearly realized and polished at this point that I was sure that this was something that Belushi brought with him from his sketch background. I think it's, yeah, it's pretty obvious that, that this is a complete concept at this point. His mannerisms were too precise. He had all these little embellishments, all these little sight gags that, that he would work into the physical performance that it was just way too sharp and well-crafted to be something that was just spun up in a week. And uh, the sketch, yeah, it fires from end to end. It doesn't get boring. You can tell the audience is loving every second of it. Every little gag that Belushi throws out keeps the energy high. You never just get sick of the idea of, oh, okay, he's a samurai. I get it. He's a fish out of water, blah, blah, blah. No, he's using a samurai sword to play pool. And then he cuts his finger. <laughs> and then he's got his hand up in his in his robe, scratching his shoulder for a little effect. It's just, there's just so much there to to bite into that, I think it's one of the best sketches that the show has seen up to this point. 
this is one that I feel you could put on TV today and you'd get more laughs. There's nothing weak about it or nothing that doesn't hold up over 40 years. And I think that's amazing. It says something about John Belushi too, since it's his baby. <laughs> yeah. And we've come a long way with bald caps. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we've had some technological breakthroughs with how convincing they are. Yeah. But at this point in the show, again, it's still so much just duct tape and, <laughs> and string holding it together that you can't be too, <laughs> too critical of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. They pushed the musical performance pretty early into the show and we get, um, Gil Scott Heron performing Johannesburg, but we're going to talk about both of his songs. So, uh, Johannesburg, I'd characterize it as some kind of, uh, sort of like a soul anthem about apartheid in South Africa. And a lovely day is a little bit more R and B ish. That's about as much as, as I can peg it. I actually kind of enjoyed them. I didn't think his vocals were too stunning on a lovely day, but I thought Johannesburg was kind of fun, kind of funky. Funky indeed. Yeah. That blues funk sound. He's, he's, he really kills that. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was African, you know, the, the traditional tribal. Yeah. The, the rhythm. Yeah. There was African instruments kind of reminded me of what Paul Simon did on Graceland, Mm -hmm. you know, taking, uh, his usual sound and adding some African influence to it. Yep. Great way to make a shout out to South Africa. Yeah. I thought it was pretty fun. I enjoyed it because we're 40 years removed from it. I don't really understand the true relevance of why he was there or kind of what he was all about. I know a little bit about apartheid. I know that it wasn't good. And I know that obviously there'd be uh, motivation to use the show as a vehicle to get a message out about it. So that's probably where Richard Pryor was coming from when he brought him in. But yeah, for what it was, I, I enjoyed it. I can't really connect to it the way that they probably connected back then, but I thought it was fun. Yeah, agreed. Cool. Looks at books. Uh, Jane Curtin interviews the author of White Like Me, uh, who went incognito as a white man to understand the white man's burden. This is very, very familiar to a sketch that would show up a little bit later in, in SNL's run. We'll talk a little bit more about Eddie Murphy's version, but just as a sketch, did this hold up? Was this clever? Where, what, what's your takeaway on this? Yeah. I mean, uh, the book that they're making fun of or, or paradising black like me, mm-hmm. it wasn't anything that came out that recently. I think it came out in early sixties, but it was a pretty important publication. And you know, it's, it's a natural idea to come up with, to reverse that and make a white like me. Mm-hmm. And you know, that is often a, a staple of black comedians to, to make observations of their, of their white friends. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say the audience was predominantly white. And, um, they were good sports about having, you know, a bit of fun poked at them, sure. you know, when he started doing the, Oh, excuse me voice and, right, right. and the, and the white man walk, those were the two big hits of the sketch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought it was a, a good concept. Jane Curtin was a perfect choice to, uh, play off that over the top character that Richard was doing and kind of keeping it grounded as a, a, a straight woman. Yep. It's really good. Yep. My assumption is that this was an easy vehicle to again, pull in some more tried and true stand up bits that he had. Uh, like you mentioned the, the nerdy white guy, professor voice and the, the white guy walk and all of that stuff that he's already got at arm's reach. I, I think they just were finding a fun way to cobble all that together. And, uh, it worked. It is interesting that SNL aired the Eddie Murphy pre-taped white, like me thing so many years later. You know, it's a bit different because it was a pre-tape. We're actually seeing what's being described by Richard Pryor in his version. Yeah. So it's hard to say, 
you know, where this falls in, in terms of, you know, what's appropriate to borrow and, oh yeah. And, and to re retool, but I, I'm fine with it personally. Yeah, no, I don't think it's venturing anywhere even close to plagiarism area because like you said, the execution's completely different. My, my hunch is that Eddie Murphy probably rewatched the sketch, you know, looking for inspiration and said, what if we actually did the part of the story that he's talking about in the interview? Like, that's kind of like what it feels like that could have been the genesis of it. And, uh, that's perfectly valid, right? If, if you see something and you say, okay, let's go down that, that path and let's, let's embellish that and explore that and open that up. Great. I just think it's really interesting that this is such a close overlap to what came later. And, uh, yeah, I'd really like to know what Eddie Murphy's thinking was when, uh, they started working on the the second incarnation of this. He might've been thinking about what the show was capable of doing versus, you know, what it might not have been so capable of doing in its earlier form. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, this kind of pre-tape would be a little bit ambitious for the first season of NBC Saturday night. Sure. Yeah. So maybe that's what he was thinking that he could bring something new to that same concept where there was uh, more resources to draw from. Yeah, that makes sense. He could almost pay homage with the bigger platform that he had available. Okay. Moving on. We do get a pre-tape new dad, a radically new concept in family insurance coverage. Uh, Okay. Walk us through it. What's the gag here? Instead of being protected financially as you would with life insurance, if a loved one dies, this one literally replaces them with another (laughs) human being to basically fill that role and continue on as nobody left. You know, as bizarre as that sounds, it it plays off to uh, an equal amount of hilarity, in my opinion. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, I thought it was really funny. Surprisingly funny. And now that I'm a dad and a little bit on in years, I say that being in my mid thirties, but this gets funnier every time I see it because- I know that the intention of the writers when they wrote it is to make someone who would be replaced cringe at the thought of, in this case, you know, someone else raising their kid or feeling up their wife, (laughs) you know, like, or putting their picture over the picture of the original dad. It is meant to be as offensive to the departed person as possible. And I I think that that's just a really fun little uh, bent or just a a fun little um, wicked thing (laughs) in the sketch that you don't really realize when you're watching it, but it really does sting if you, if you think about it in those terms. And that is the gag, right? Like if they were trying to respectfully show what it would be like to provide this kind of insurance coverage, they wouldn't have a taller, more attractive dad come in to replace the old one and immediately, you know, get on the couch and have the wife hop up on his lap. And then he starts going to town on her. That's the most offensive thing that a husband could think of, right? Like just someone else stepping in and just, you know, that is a great, fun, little comedic idea. And even though the sketch itself is very slow and paced and measured because that underlying idea is so, yeah, just so wicked. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I find it delicious. It is nutritious and delicious. (laughs) Yeah. I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that that was actually Chevy Chase's girlfriend that he brought in to do that. Okay. So they could, you know, start necking. uh, Yeah. It's a little less convincingly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's not much else to say about it. It's a fun idea and it was well-realized. And again, for the time when sketches tended to not age well, this is another one that I feel actually holds up surprisingly well. Yeah, it does. That's one of those for sure. Yeah. Okay. Now we get a little pastiche that runs through the show of these police lineups. We get three callbacks to it. The basic premise is you've got Richard Pryor as a perp and he's being fingered by Gilda Radner, but it's a no win situation for him. So I, I think the, 
the message of the sketch is pretty obvious. And then by bringing it back three times and making it more and more ridiculous each time they call it back, um, the point is made. There's a lot of news articles and there's a lot of events in history that are reminiscent of this uh, concept. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've, you, you hear a lot about the police and the justice system. They'll engineer a situation that gets the, the outcome that they want, whether or not it's actually constitutional. Right. So it's, it's something that people would recognize, you know, it's something that's painful, but that's sometimes the best thing to do is, is find a way to laugh at it. Now that's the real question. Was it funny, right? We understand what the message was and we understand that it's a fair point to be made because there's a plethora of examples where people are railroaded through the justice system. They just didn't stand a chance. And black people have borne the brunt of that kind of bias throughout American history. So we, we get the heavy part of it, but was Richard Pryor able to take that and turn that into something that we could laugh at? Yeah. And I think the escalation is, is really the key to this working. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that it does get more and more obvious till we get a bunch of cops yes. literally pointing <laughs> at the black guy Yeah, and to bring him in already in cuffs, stuff like that. It's like, yeah, the guy really didn't stand a chance and it was just so comically uh, over the top with what it was saying that it just goes the other way and, and goes from serious to funny. So this was a win. You wanted this in the show. Yep. Yeah, it's a great little bumper. Yep. I agree. I don't know how this was taken at the time, but it seemed like everyone in the room at least really embraced it quickly, which I was a little surprised by. I thought that maybe this would be something where people wouldn't be that quick to get on board because it's such a, I was assuming at the time, a very raw issue, especially in the mid seventies that there were a lot of headline news cases of wrongfully convicted black people. I just, I just wasn't sure if people were going to want to be goofing on it, but yeah, it seemed to play really well. Yeah, it did. Okay. Now we're going to get to the crown jewel of our podcast here. The word association sketch, the Mm. infamous classic word association sketch. The setup is very simple. Mr. Wilson is being interviewed for a janitorial job. Chevy Chase is giving him a word association psychological evaluation to make sure that he's fit for the job. And it takes a very nasty racial heated turn. (laughs) So to speak. Yeah. Yes. We're 40 years removed from this. Was this a more powerful sketch in the seventies or would this be a more powerful sketch to see for the first time today with our current climate? Actually, we might be coming full circle because if you asked me a couple of years ago, I'd say, oh, it was definitely more, this is something that's more appropriate back then. And and people would find more funny back then because racism was more casual back then. So, you know, while we've made improvements, people are, are saying that there's casual racism coming back Mm -hmm. because you know, the climate in politics is making people more comfortable to be more outspoken about their prejudices. Sure. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of come full circle that it's, it's relevant today as it was back then. Do you get the sense from watching this show that the language used in this sketch had the same amount of um, power or ability to make people recoil as it does today? What do you think the reaction was, or what do you think this sketch did at the time? Uh, how do you think people took it at the time? Yeah, there might have been some some squirming, some uncomfortable, nervous laughter instead of you know belly laughs. You can hear the tension go back and forth mm-hmm. 
you know, it, it, you feel it raise and then you feel the relief with all of Richard Pryor's responses. Right. Because without those, it's just a bunch of racist terms thrown at a black person. But for him to fight back and to, to, <laughs> to have uh, a retort to it, that's the juggling act that's going on here that makes it work. Mm-hmm. So I think it did make people uncomfortable. There's a, it was definitely a, a gasp moment or two. It feels like it was a potent enough sort of back and forth escalation that I'm certain that it still must have made people perk up and say, wow, that's just not something that you see on <laughs> network TV. I'm amazed that it ever aired. Even back then, I'm amazed that it ever aired. Yeah. My only other thought on it before moving on is this is another situation where the structure of the sketch is a black person and a white person. They come at each other and the black person ends up getting the upper hand. And again, without, you know, dwelling too much on it, we already kind of covered it in the cold open. It seems like that was definitely a theme that Richard Pryor and the writers that he brought in to, to help craft the show. It seems like that's something that they wanted to be able to say. And this is another example of where they said that. Yeah. This is one of those Paul Mooney sketches. Yeah. 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 We get a pre-tape. Franken and Davis are playing Pong while talking about Al's last hockey game. What do you make of this? Is there anything here? Uh, it's hard to get behind this one. And I love Al Franken. It was nice to hear his voice and, and have him do something because I've always been a big fan of his, but yeah, it's it just sound like a conversation, not like a comedy piece Yeah, with jokes. It wasn't like who's on first right. by any means. No, um, I couldn't find the joke period. I'm sure there was something there that they were reaching for, but I just couldn't find it. It just, it was a thud for me. I just, I'm, I'm listening, listening, waiting for a punchline, waiting for something to connect to. And it just wasn't there for me. Yeah. Unfortunately, I really didn't know what they were trying to do. Honestly. Yep. Maybe it was just the novelty of having Pong up on the TV screen, which at the time would have been more of kind of like a cultural touchstone, like something that would have been novel to people seeing it in 1975. Uh, but let's not dwell on that. Cause this is obviously not the high point of the show. Next, we get a live sketch. It's an oblivious father played by Dan Aykroyd, and he's ranting about all the problems with black people and how they're taking over. And while he's ranting, his family literally becomes black all around him, and he's none the wiser. Is this smart? Is it trying to be smart and not really smart? What's the message here? I think it's kind of smart. Okay, how? To me, it says something about how racism is is something that's constructed and, and is not really based on your actual surroundings. You know, while he's talking about how he could see things uh, being blackwashed, I guess mm-hmm. if that could be a term, you know, the fact that he's complaining about complaining about and doesn't even ha- notice it happening in his own home. Like, is that something that is actually happening to him or is it something he's just learned to fear? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of message I get from it. Okay. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, I I couldn't tell you if you are wrong because I didn't have a good beat on it. There is the obvious joke of he's ranting about black people taking over and he can't clue into the fact that his family's literally just been replaced by black people. Like there is something there about his oblivious nature while being all up in arms about black people taking over. But is it saying that they literally are like <laughs> in a, in a, almost like a supernatural way? Like they literally are like, you're, you're going to wake up tomorrow and everyone around you is going to be black. Like, or th- is it just the absurdity of taking his paranoia to an extreme? Is that the joke? I just, I couldn't quite 
put it together. So to me, even though it was fun to see the characters come out transformed into black, I just wasn't sure what they were shooting for. Yeah. Well, my guess is a guess. So yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not going to vouch for what I, what I think it's about. It's a, it's a thought though. Yeah. Yeah. We are sadly underqualified <laughs> for, for this kind of SNL analysis. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about weekend update. This is the most classic and quintessential of weekend updates. This is Chevy Chase's original run when they're establishing all of those classic bits that we still quote today. You know, Generalissimo, Francisco Franco is still dead. Uh, <laughs> all of that stuff. This is where all of that stuff was being born and driven into the ground. It's obviously fun just to see this era of weekend update and then be able to contrast it with what it's evolved into with our current version of it. But did it hold up on its own? Was this a fun outing for Weekend Update? Yeah, absolutely. Really goes to show how different news was presented back then. When Chevy was doing it, it was very much news bulletin in character yep. as a newscaster, as an anchorman. Yeah. So it was presented more more straight and the jokes kind of spoke for themselves. Right. But delivered in that news bulletin uh, voice. Yeah the way the jokes are delivered is very intentionally meant to mimic what you would see on the evening news that you get that quick pointed facts thrown out kind of one after another. And then the, the joke is always the little tiny refrain at the end of it. You know, the, <laughs> the boat didn't suffer any damage. The, the swimmer died immediately. That is the, the cadence of a newscaster, but the punchline fits into it. So they found that that that's a really clever way of being able to deliver these one-off jokes and Chevy was great at it. Even when he'd flub, he still had a fun way of uh, just making a few noises and then rebooting and, <laughs> and jumping back into it. it. It was really the first hit that I think the show had, you know, the first thing that it seems like it was obvious from day one that this works, this is what we need to make sure, you know, we're, we're continuing to build and, and invest in week over week and only seven episodes in, and it already is a very, very strong segment. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Right in the middle of weekend update, they decide to drop a pre-tape for Spud Beer, which is the beer brewed for people who can't taste the difference. Uh, we've seen a lot of commercial parody pre-tapes over the last 40 some odd years. How does this one stack up, especially considering how early in the show's run it appears? Uh, I actually had a lot of fun with this one. Yeah. I was laughing out loud to myself, <laughs> laughing like an idiot. That summertime free-for-all energy, that spirit that's in all beer commercials, that is very much present here mm -hmm. uh, in direct contrast with someone going through electric shock therapy <laughs> and then stuffing a beer in his hand <laughs> when his, his mind is a million miles away and just staring into nothingness, that thousand-yard stare. It's, it, uh, yeah, it had me, uh, had me in stitches, and I don't know who they casted for that role, but he had the perfect look to just be a vegetable. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was Alan Zwiebel, wasn't it? Was it? One of the, yeah, one of the early writers on the show. Oh, I'm sure it was someone who worked for the show. Yeah. But I didn't recognize him. I think it was. I think the schnoz gives it away. Ah, yes. Yeah, this was great. Some of the early episodes of SNL, some of the commercial parodies that they did, the joke is very subtle. Uh, I'm thinking of like Jamatol is a good example of that. Yeah. They just didn't really capture the the fun that you can bring out in a commercial parody as well with some of their earlier efforts. Whereas this one, I feel like this is really the template of what a modern SNL commercial parody is. 
Yeah. I forgot that this was in the show. And so when I encountered it again, it was, it was a lot of fun. I, it was fun to revisit it and it holds up really, really well. Yeah, it does. Now does Emily Latella hold up? You know, we saw a lot of Gilda Radner doing this bit and uh, it's always pretty much a, <laughs> a Mad Libs, you know, weekend update Mad Libs <laughs> features are, are as old as the show. Uh, she shows up tonight to talk about busting school children. <laughs> What'd you think? This one, I think was a bit of a stretch, like violence and violins. Right. That's a little bit better for, for this format. I think busting school children, it's a bit of a stretch to, to complain about that. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's funny as, as this character always is, it's just not the most successful outing they've had. Yeah. Yeah. My feeling was I enjoy seeing the character just because of the historicity of it. Uh, you know, this is early quintessential Gilda on the show, but this was not the best outing of it. This was very much just run of the mill, fill in the blanks. And uh, there's really not much to say about it. It was a really fun character the first time it showed up. And then they did this a heck of a lot <laughs> throughout the early seasons. Yeah. I noticed in this one, I was waiting for the big ending line, you know, that, that little interchange there. And I think she botched it actually. Cause normally she says, Oh, well that's different then. Never mind. Like there's a little bit more to what she says. And in this one, she just kind of goes, Oh, and fumbles a little and then says, "Never mind." And it just, it again, just kind of said to me, this is just not the strongest outing of Emily's character or this, you know, this bit. Uh, so let's, <laughs> let's harp on this for 10 more minutes. Cause this is the most important part of the show <laughs> coming out a weekend update. The first sketch is a very quick little in and out called suicide pill. Did you like it? Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a one trick pony, just a setup joke ending. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really all this is, but the timing was spot on. You know, it had the, the deadpan delivery yeah. that makes this work. Uh, Dan Aykroyd is, is the real chef in the kitchen to make this work. I mean, it, it can't get much better than this for a little tiny short sketch. Yeah. I was surprised that they went through so much effort as far as, you know, dressing a set and getting them all into army costumes for such a quick, you know, one joke sketch. Well, keep in mind that that set was already used in the free word association sketch. It's the exact same set. Oh yeah. Okay. So you figured it out. Uh, that went right over my head that it makes perfect sense. Now, now it goes from being a needless complication in the show to, to dress a new set to, oh, it's obvious. Now they don't have to tear down the set on the side. They can leave it for 15 minutes and revisit it. Okay. Well, that makes yeah, a lot more sense. Then. They're just ringing out a few more drops. Yeah. Okay. So that, that explains that. So yeah, my, my analysis on it is completely moot, <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. And you're right. Dan Aykroyd as a character actor, like just being able to really fire very quickly as a character, like his dialogue, it never feels like he's thinking about the dialogue. It just feels like he is the character that seemed to be his gift. Totally. Okay. Muppets. Yes. We had a whole season of Muppets back in the day, and they are not the most pleasant Muppets. This is the land of Gorch with Plubus and Scred, and this week they get drunk and go visit the Great Favad again. <laughs> is there anything you want to say about the Muppets? Well, there's a reason why they didn't keep doing it. Mm -hmm. It didn't really work, and I, I've read how much the writers hated working on these <laughs> uh, Muppet segments. and. When you know that, it, it really shows in what they were throwing together just for the sake of putting the Muppets on because yeah. I guess there was a contract in place. It was pretty obvious that it wasn't working and, you know, they played it out. But 
you can appreciate it because it brought us the Muppet show. Yeah. I, I suppose there's some value in this being an opportunity for Jim Henson's creature shop to hone their craft. Uh, and then, you know, take that and, and run with it later on with the, the Muppets that we all know and love. But uh, yeah, this, the, this has always been a tough slog for me. I force myself to watch them, but it's always a little painful. <laughs> yeah. We'll just chalk it up to them trying something out. It's not always going to work. Sure. Yeah. Well, enough on the Muppets. We don't cast for felt here. <laughs> the Exorcist 2, an ironic title considering that there was an Exorcist 2 and an Exorcist 3. Was this a win? I know it was technically ambitious, so I'm just going to kind of open it up to you to, to lay this one out. What what'd you think? It was a win, and this is uh, something we see a lot. I basically view this as a what if, you know, if the priests that were involved with the exorcist were black instead of white and had the sensibilities that tend to go with that culture <laughs> sure. as opposed to uh, Caucasians. Right. And yeah, you see this here, you know, like they kind of lose their cool when, when they bring their mama into it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't find this that interesting because you, you realize what the goof is pretty early on that she's uh, able to find their, you know, their weakness there and get under their skin. That really was the the long and short of the sketch. And I felt like there was a whole lot of sketch there that didn't escalate or go anywhere interesting after you figure that part out. It's neat that they had the bed, you know, rocking and the, the drawers popping and like atmospherically production wise, it, it's really interesting that they could produce that on the first season of SNL. Yeah. But otherwise this really was forgettable for me. There wasn't much here that I feel like uh, stands the test of time, right? I don't, I don't think anyone cares about the sketch 40 years on. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, keep rolling along here. Next, we get our obligatory Albert Brooks pre-tape. I really do not like the Albert Brooks contributions to the show. I've always just felt they were really boring and pointless and the jokes were just too thin. It seemed pretty half-assed and and that was kind (laughs) of the joke behind it. But yeah, it it just, you spend so much time wondering where it's going. Like, why am I watching this? Then it's all of a sudden over and then you realize, oh, okay. He was trying to say that he's being worked too hard. Maybe go easy on him. But like, it's, I guess it's just not what we're used to uh, in terms of pre-tapes mm-hmm. and, you know, having a very clear message and a clear direction of where it's going. This was like almost free form. Yeah. I think even by 1970s standard, I don't think that this was a fantastic piece of comedy. It does seem like there was something in there, but it's just so layered into all of his rambling and then the the little story of the chicken getting dropped off and just, there's just, uh, it was scattered and the joke wasn't presented well. And the whole premise wasn't really established or brought to any kind of satisfying conclusion. And I'm just really, really glad that, uh, that these didn't persist with the show. Cause I just, I didn't think that it was a good fit or that they generated anything worthwhile for the show. Yeah. It's funny because I find Albert Brooks much, much funnier in something like Taxi Driver. Sure. <laughs> which is one of the most disturbing, depressing <laughs> films I've ever seen. And it's still funnier than uh, than these pre-tapes yeah. from SNL. Okay, so um, Tom Schiller comes out as a mock audience member. And he begins ranting in front of Richard Pryor about his theory about the Kennedy assassination. And then he's inevitably shot. I guess the joke is... <laughs> maybe there was a conspiracy because someone obviously didn't want you talking about it. Uh, very quick, simple joke thrown in there. 
Is there anything else to say about this little side diversion here? Well, it's unfortunate because, you know, the performance was pretty funny Mm -hmm. and uh, the energy was, was up there and I was into it. Um, There was a couple of distracting flubs in the lines that kind of brought it down a bit. And it's unfortunate that, you know, we got the one shot to do it and now those are forever, (laughs) you know, hard grained into that, that moment. So, Mm -hmm. yep. This was a bit of a misfire, but quick. And then we're on to Shelly Pryor, who is not Richard Pryor's wife, but his ex-wife. I'm sure there's a story there. Uh, But he wanted to bring her into the show to do a little performance piece uh, accompanied by a piano. She tells a story about a a carousel horse that has some troubles in life. Thoughts? I thought it was cute. Yeah? Yeah. It was a fun, cute little uh, uh, children's fairy tale about, you know, a biracial relationship and, <laughs> and how society would, would react to it. Okay. The message in it, was it poignant or sharp or smart? Like, was it a, a well-presented idea? You walk away from it saying, oh, that was, you know, that was really smart and engaging. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's clever. That's pleasant. Was, did you get any kind of reaction from it? Because I just kind of walked away going, huh, eh, take it or leave it. That didn't really do much for me. Well, I was having fun with it. Okay. It's not like my jaw was on the floor or anything, but it was a fun story. I didn't know exactly where they were going. And then, you know, she started talking about how we're all wood underneath the paint. I thought that was a great analogy. Like, I mean, it, it did have that little turn at the end that makes the point, yeah. right? Like th- that is there. The message is there. I just, I didn't think it was super smart getting there. Like it just, it didn't feel like this was such a, a brilliant little performance that it, it had to be in the show. I just, I don't know. It, it, it seems like something that you would see at like a, like a, a middle school talent show kind of a thing. That's kind of what I felt like. Yeah, there, there was a, a cute message there and it, it was kind of fun, but this is not like top tier nationally broadcast entertainment caliber stuff. It seemed like the only reason why she was on the stage was probably because it was Richard Pryor's call. That's kind of what I felt. Yeah. So you didn't like it much. I didn't mind it being in the show. It's not that I didn't like it. I just, it didn't do anything for me. Like it, it didn't impress me. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Right. So we're, Quickly rounding out the show here, Richard Pryor comes back to do another run of stand-up here. This time, the the basic storyline involves uh, a religiously inclined wino who helps to uh, <laughs> set a, a young heroin addict on a better path in life. <laughs> it didn't land as well for me as, as the first monologue did, to be honest, but, um, you know, it had its moments. Okay. You know, we already saw him do the drunk things. So for him to, you know, do a whole bunch more material in that drunk persona. Right. You know, it started to get oversaturated with that. And I would have rather seen something else, but there was some good stuff in there. What about you? My feeling was that it was strong material. It just kind of like what you said, it just wasn't what I wanted to be seeing at this point in the show. There was so much little stuff just kind of like tossed up on the wall in the back half. You know, we move from Muppets to Albert Brooks to Tom Schiller coming out of the audience to Shelley Pryor. There was so much uh, stuff and not a lot of it really landed. I just really would have liked just a good solid sketch to round out the night. That's just what I was feeling at that point. But this was Richard Pryor's show. They're going to use as much of him as they can and they want an easy win and they know his standup is great. And so they just cut him loose. I, I understand how it ends up in the show. It just, uh, for my money, I would have liked to see something more inventive. That's all. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm there with you. 
Um, okay, so that's pretty much it. Yeah. Moment of the night. My moment of the night, uh, I would have to say it's that climactic moment in the word association sketch. That whole sketch is, of course, a huge classic. But when you're looking at a clip show and they take a moment out of it, that is definitely what they focus on is when they get to that N-word utterance. Mm-hmm. And uh, Richard Pryor had already called him a honky twice. You know, to hear that king of derogatory terms refer to a black man says it again, but uh, with a, a mild threat behind it. Well, I shouldn't say mild, a pretty obvious one. Right, right. You know, it was a big laugh, huge classic moment of SNL. I got to give it to that. Sure. There really can't be any debate on this. I mean, history has already made this call for us. <laughs> that is the the moment that didn't just define the show, but probably define the season in a lot of ways. Right. Like this is one of those things that put SNL on the map. It was already getting good press at this point in its run, but this was them really pushing the boundaries and uh, beyond it, trying to be a, a piece of comedy. It still has strength, right? The fact that not just that the, the word is used, but that Richard Pryor replies to it ferociously right like he's not gonna back down and be cowed by it but he's going to really show his fortitude as a you know as a as a human being yeah and not just simply be denied this job and and just be degraded by this person the the fact that he turns around and he gets the upper hand and he ends up cowing chevy chase that is a really strong scenario that you probably didn't see much of on TV in the seventies. Like that probably really was just a a moment and something that uh, rightly you can point to and say that, that, that is something that I think maybe without being a black person, I don't want to you know overstep here, but it seems like that's the sort of thing that black people could look at and say, this is a, a proud moment where someone who is representing us and our struggles is on TV and he's showing that he is not going to be marginalized. And he's not going to be degraded and he's going to come out swinging. It seems to me that that probably had some power and probably meant a lot to a lot of people. And even though we're so far removed and I really can't speak with any authority on it, it seems like there was definitely something there. And obviously, you know, people have latched onto it and it, it is something that they still look back on as, as being a seminal moment in, in TV history. So yeah, yeah, there's definitely, <laughs> definitely some power in that moment. Yep. It's been proven. Yeah, so that's both of our moments of the night. Best overall sketch. I know it's not what people think about when they think of this episode. They think of uh, the word association sketch, of course. Mm-hmm. But me, my personal taste, I think that uh, Spud <laughs> beer uh, commercial was my favorite sketch overall, okay. for sure. It was really, really funny. I, I'm i still laughing. It just it, <laughs> such a disturbing visual. <laughs> They're handing out beers to these guys that just, yeah, there's just nothing going on upstairs. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fine. Like if we're sitting here giggling, there's obviously something, something good in that. I'm obviously going to give it to um, the Franken and Davis Pong sketch. Obviously. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think uh, Samurai Hotel, this is our, our first incarnation of Futaba. It is really strong. Belushi's performance is just end to end perfect as that character and the sketch itself, it had a pretty clear like structure, you know, it established itself, sets up the goof. They have fun with the goof and then they have a a fun little way to exit where the bellboy bests him. Like they have, 
calls his honor into question or whatever. And they have to duel and they have this ridiculous back and forth. And then uh, Futaba, you know, stands down and, and takes the bags himself. So as a sketch and how it played out kind of structurally, it was very um, clean and, and well-written. And then on top of it, you've got John Belushi just doing some brilliant work. So clean. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> Oh, it's late. Didn't mean to cut you off. I just, I'm running out of clever words to sprinkle into my analysis here. Um, yeah, I liked it. I just thought it was a, a strong sketch end end. Now MVP. This is a bit harder than it is for a modern day SNL sketch because there's so many, you know, there's a guest host, but there's so many other guests as mm-hmm. well. It takes away from screen time that cast members would have. Right. So we don't see the cast members as much as we would in you know later seasons of the show you you almost have to give it to richard pryor because of the presence he has throughout the show he has two monologues some of the best lines all the the physical comedy he brought to the show really landed there there's just so much richard pryor all over this and there's so much influence he had by bringing in writers and Mm -hmm. you know crafting this whole episode around his uh his sensibilities it's a no brainer to give it to Richard Pryor. Yep. I I agree. I don't know who else you could look at and say that they had as much of an influence over the highs of this show, like the best moments of the show than, than him. Yeah. This was Richard Pryor's show. There's no, no getting around it. It's gotta go to Richard, man. Yep. Okay. On a scale of classic, great, typical weak or train wreck. How would you rate this episode? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of, kind of silly. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, again, this is one of the things where history has kind of already determined the answer to this, but if you just take this, uh, remove any cultural significance from it and just take the show end to end, the highs, the lows, you know, where the laughs were, where the quality was, where the brilliance was, and then say, okay, what, what, do, what do we consider to be great or classic in a current episode? How does this actually hold up? Like, how does this stand the test of time as a piece of entertainment? Let's look at it that way. Sure. Um, For the most part, great. A lot of stuff that if they were on SNL today, you'd read scathing reviews about. Mm -hmm. Like if they tried to do some of this stuff, like that Pong thing, there'd be articles written questioning why that was in there and who made the mistake (laughs) of putting that in. So yeah, I don't want to give it a week. You know, I'm just going to settle on typical for this. If we're going to hold it up to today's standards and what we're used to. Okay. Let's call it a typical episode. Okay. That's fair. My feeling is that the 10 o'clock version, you know, the edited down to fit into 44 minutes of runtime version of this that you see on TV. I think that's a classic episode because there is about half an hour to 45 minutes of really great material in this sprinkled in with some really strong socially uh, relevant messages and, you know, a seminal moment in television history. So there's enough there that it's classic. But when you watch this whole thing end to end, all hour and a half of it, all, you know, 20 pieces of it, there are as many real like clunkers and missteps and just really tough material that doesn't stand the test of time as there is classic material. And so because of that, if you're looking at the full unabridged version, I have to agree. I think there's great material in it and there's really weak material in it. And so it really becomes overall a middle of the road offering of SNL. Yep. Yep. But that said, (laughs) you can't, you really can't deny that there's a reason why people point to this as one of the important moments in SNL history. Cause yeah, for as many weak points as it has, it has some soaring, soaring highs as well. Yep. 
Okay. So do you have any like big, important closing thoughts on this show? Like just overall what you took away from it? It just made me happy to watch it. Yeah. Sometimes we forget that this show has been around for 42 years. Mm -hmm. If, if this name of the show wasn't the same, hell, this name isn't even the same. (laughs) It's NBC Saturday night, but you know, you, you would have to be reminded that this is in fact the same show in a lot of ways. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I have loved this show and, and, and I started with reruns as a, as a kid, you know, I didn't watch SNL as it was airing because mm-hmm. that was a little too late for me as a child, but I did watch a lot of reruns. So classic SNL is like what I really connect to when I think of the show. And I know I'm 32 years old talking about an episode <laughs> that aired 10 years before I was born, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I feel. Sure. I just think it's fascinating that, well, there's two things that I I really find uh, fun when I look back on the show. First off, I love comparing it to the first episode because it's great to see how in the course of seven episodes, they've already begun building the legacy that would endure for 42 years. There's already so many elements that they barely had a handle on in the first episode that they've already started to tighten up and turn into quintessential SNL pieces like parts of what makes up the fabric of the show that we know now so it's nice to see how quickly they started to turn the show into this institution and and really craft the the leaner meaner version of it that we have today it's nice to see that as a work in progress but see how how quickly they're moving in that direction it's also of course fun to see the show at its absolute freshest where the bits that we consider to be these classic comedy touchstones that everyone knows where they originated from like, uh, you know, Garrett Morris, the hard of hearing or some of the other weekend update stuff. That's classic or Futaba or whatever it is to see the, the first outings of those. And to realize that nobody as they're performing these sketches at the time realizes how much of a legacy these bits are going to have for so long. There's no awareness in the show right now that this is going to make it through the season. They're just throwing out material as they come up with it and just, trying to just pull this thing together week over week. And there's just no understanding of the momentum that they're going to be building for the next half a century. And I think it's really fun to see that as well as see the players in their prime too. That's cool too. Absolutely. Yeah. So as uneven as the show was, you can't help but be overwhelmed with the history on display as you're watching it. And that to me is always satisfying. Totes McGroats. Okay. And totes McBoats. (laughs) Yes. Oh, (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, that's it for tonight. Let's call it a cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at TransparencyCHMR. If you'd like to support our podcast, please consider using and bookmarking our Amazon and other affiliate links found at snlafterparty.fm. It costs you absolutely nothing to use our affiliate links when shopping online, but it really helps us in covering our costs and is greatly appreciated. We'll be back in two weeks when SNL returns with host Louis C.K. and musical guest The Chainsmokers. This has been episode number 18 of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. (laughs) If you didn't watch the show, we hope you made love. Thank you and good night. The Muppets are Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Alice Tweedy, Richard Hunt, and Jim Henson. Also featured in tonight's cast, Kathy McKee and Tom Schiller. This is Don Bono saying, who do I have to shake hands with to get off this show? Good night.
Spear chucker. Whack trash. Jungle bunny. Hunky. Spade. Hunky, hunky. Nigger. Dead hunky. I think you're qualified for this job. Uh, how about a starting salary of $5,000? Your mama. Uh, $7,500 a year. Your grandma. $15,000, Mr. Wilson. You'll be the highest paid janitor in America. Just don't, don't hurt me, please. <laughs> 